Welcome to Death by Music Podcast. I'm Drew, sitting here on some lovely Victorian furniture with Cassie and Alex. And thank you guys for supporting season one. Uh, now we are ready to jump feet first into season two. We've got 10 episodes yeah. planned. We've started researching and uh, we're just going to jump right in on Prince today. We're starting it off really strong. I mean, he's got such an insane career. He's such a talented musician. So we used a lot of resources for this one because, well, he's got this huge life. I mean, there's just so much to talk about. So uh, as far as the sources go, ultimateprince.com was huge for me. They had articles by Jeff Giles, Nick DeRiso, and Corey Irwin that I used. Hello Magazine had a profile on Prince. There was a princebiography.com article. There was a Prince biography by Robert Walser on Britannica. Goldiesparade.co.uk um, had an article about Warner's dispute. TheVintageNews.com by Steve Pallas had an article on Prince. HollywoodLife.com by Bonnie Fuller. Billboard.com by Mark Warden. Pitchfork.com by Mark Hogan. Liveabout.com uh, had one by Nadra Kareem Nittel. Wikipedia, of course, as usual. And then there was an AP article that was the autopsy report. Prince died of fentanyl overdose by Michael Tarm and Amy Forlitti. Spoiler alert. What? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? The sources? No. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. So now you know how he died if you didn't know. But that's just what the article was. Okay. Anyways. All right. So starting <laughs> way back at the beginning of Prince. Prince was born on June 7th, 1958, and yes, that was his real name. He was born Prince Rogers Nelson in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but was known by many names over his lifetime, including the artist formerly known as Prince, and simply the artist. He was also known as a symbol, and we'll get to all of that later. His parents were also both musicians and played in a band together. John Nelson, his father, went by Prince Rogers on stage, and his mother, Maddie Shaw, was a jazz singer alongside him in the Prince Rogers band. When they had their first child together, he was named after his father's stage name. Now, his father wanted Prince to be just like him, but Prince hated that name, and he opted to go by Skipper as a child instead. Prince showed promise in the mu in music from a very young age. He started with piano at age seven. He also taught himself guitar and drums. His parents' relationship didn't last very much longer past that age. By age 10, he and his baby sister were splitting time in between their parents' houses. After his mother remarried and had another son named Omar, Prince switched living situations multiple times. Shortly after that, he was kicked out of his own father's house and and moved into the basement of the Andersons, who were his neighbors. Yeah, in an interview with Rolling Stone in 1985, Prince talked to journalist Neil Carlin and said he was kicked out of his father's house after being caught in bed with a girl. Ooh. He also stated at that point he would have done anything for his dad to forgive him and let him come back home. He tried repeatedly. He begged like he fell down on his knees and was like, Dad, please let me come back. Oh his dad just kept saying no. Um, according to the book, Prince... Chaos, Disorder, and Revolution, author John Draper recounted the upbringing of Prince, who was often reportedly abused by his father. Oh, wow. I didn't even read any of that. Yeah. So the book also states that Prince shared some of the stories of abuse with a, a few close confidants, like Susan Rogers, who was his engineer from 1983 to 1988. Susan said, and this was a direct quote from the book, Prince told me there was abuse in his childhood. <laughs> it did oh, not elaborate any further. I looked. I couldn't find anything. I'm sorry for bringing it up. I thought you should know. Thanks, Susan. Now, along the, or also the song Papa by Prince has the line that says, don't abuse children or else they turn out like me. So yeah, sounds like Prince needed out of that home. Okay, but I would say Prince turned out very well. Yeah. That's not an argument for abuse. I just think his statement <laughs> was not necessarily um, accurate. <laughs> Moving in with his neighbors, the Andersons, ended up being a really good move for him. They had a kid named Andre who would end up playing music with Prince, eventually becoming his bassist pre-revolution before starting his own solo career. Um, and this is something I found after doing research, so I do want to kind of touch on this. Uh, his hometown of Minneapolis did not see a lot of black musicians at the time. Right. But they could not ignore his talent. I mean, Prince taught himself to play over 20 instruments by ear, and he was the front man of his very own band, Grand Central, by junior high. Now, I found this article by Keith Murphy on theundefeated.com, 
And I kind of I want to just read some of this to, because we didn't focus a whole lot on the racial perspective for him. I mean, he was growing up in Minneapolis in the 50s and 60s. So here's from this article. Indeed, conditions for black folks in the Minneapolis area have long been a tinderbox. In 2019, the Twin Cities was ranked for the fourth worst place to live for African-Americans by 24-7 Wall Street based on racial disparities in income, education, health, and incarceration. For instance, the average black household in Minneapolis uh, and nearby Bloomington earned $34,000 a year, while the average white household made $78,000 a year. Prince was always a vocal supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement, who gave uh, he gave millions to social justice organizations and helped establish hashtag Yes We Code, which is a nonprofit group that pushes minority youths to pursue a career in technology. He had a firsthand experience in Minneapolis's disturbing history of unfair treatment of black people. In The Beautiful Ones, which was his posthumous memoir, Prince recalled his earliest encounter with racism when he and other black kids in his neighborhood were bused to a predominantly white elementary school in 1967. He said, I went to school with the rich kids who didn't like having me there. Uh, he recalled a moment where a white student called him the N-word and he punched the kid. He said he felt like he had to. Luckily, the guy ran away crying. James Harris III, the former keyboardist of the Prince-created outfit at the time and one half of the Grammy-winning production duo Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, also described how dire it was for young African-Americans growing up in 1970s Minneapolis. He says, we can't get a job. We better make a demo tape or something and try and get out of here. Not that we had any more talent than the white musicians, it was nothing like that. We just had more initiative because there was nothing here for us. So it was, it was not an ideal situation for him. Yeah. I mean, even in the music industry coming up, he had some issues, which we'll get to. Yeah. So that whole thing was just a quote from that article. Um, so he got super sick at all these badass instruments because he was like imprisoned and felt like the only way yeah, he to get, get the out fuck out is of to there. slay it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, Okay. Then he had his own band, Grand Central, by junior high. His talents were recognized by a producer named Owen Husney, who successfully promoted Prince to record labels. And after a bidding war, Prince was signed to Warner Brothers with full creative control. So that's pretty rare for that to happen automatically for somebody that has like literally no, no background history. or history in the industry. A lot of labels are going to want you to sound, look a certain way, you know, like a robotic thing. They put you through the factory mm -hmm. of the label. You have to dress this way. You have to sing like this. That's often why people leave the labels or they go back and forth between or renegotiate contracts. And he just gets full control right off the bat. Yes. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was awesome. So Prince relocated to Sausalito, California, and began work on his first album, For You. It's truly astounding how much this guy can do. He was not even 20 years old at the time, and he wrote, produced, arranged, composed, and played all 27 instruments on that album. The only real help that he got was with some lyrics on Soft and Wet, which we listened to. That was the first song he put on on the way over we here. Did. Super funky. <laughs> was it Soft and Wet? The song was very... <laughs> Wet. Wet. The song ended up hitting the Hot Soul singles chart as well as Just As Long As We're Together. I mean, this is probably the quickest story within the industry <laughs> we've talked about, but not everything was actually that easy for him. Yeah. Um, well, Prince, who Alex said, you know, he's 18 at the time, he signed a six-figure deal with Warner Brothers. He's producing his own albums with all these art, or all of the artistic control. He was also benefiting from the music industry sitting at the disco era times. Like he had this funk sound that nobody else was making at the time. His album For You released in 1978 peaked at 163 on the Billboard 200 chart. And then his next three albums released after that never cracked the top 20. So at the, that point, his label wasn't really happy with the content he was putting out. They were wavering whether or not like they were there to support him. They had the cash flow. They yeah. were paying him still, but they were just kind of like suggesting that maybe he shouldn't be in control of all of the creative content yeah it all seemed to evolve pretty quickly for prince after that he put together a band with andre his old neighbor um, andre anderson and he played a show for warner brothers executives by the end of 1979 they had released prince and it hit number four on the top r and blee r and blee <laughs> it hit number four on the top r&b black albums charts also going platinum and ranking on the billboard 200 now, i wasn't aware that the american bandstand was still running in 1980 but prince performed <laughs> his hits why you want to treat me so bad and i want to be your lover on the show too too sexy for 1980 
because it's about to get sexier. <laughs> Dirty Mind had some pretty explicit stuff on it, including one song called Head. And now a segment I've just made up called A Dramatic Reading of the Chorus of Head by Prince. Head, till you're burning up. <sighs> Head, till you get enough. Yeah. Head, till your love is red. Woo. Head, love you till you're dead. <laughs> Rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> so on February 21st, 1981, Prince performed Party Up and Dirty Mind on SNL. He would go on to play the infamous stage three more times during his career. Prince then released another album called Controversy and opened up for the Rolling Stones wearing a trench coat and black bikini bottoms. I think this is going to be the idea that we have for our photo shoot for the podcast. Oh my God, okay. let's do it. Let's go full Prince. Oh my God. So the the largely white audience of the Rolling Stones for some reason did not appreciate his outfit huh. even though, you know, the Stones are pretty raunchy, don't they? Aren't they the ones that have like a big inflatable dick on stage? So he, he was doing this show with the Stones and the fans like really did not appreciate it. They ended up throwing trash at Prince and forced him off st the stage early. Even still, the controversy album is where Prince truly began to evolve, to evolve into the 80s star we know him as. It featured members of the revolution, it made purple his color, and featured his shorthand spellings that would go on to be used by every edgy pop punk band ever. Is he the reason that everyone leaves the vowels out of their name now? <gasps> yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I think so. So the sound was evolving too. It was, he was combining funk, rock, dance, and soul. And the subject matter really started to open up and include more serious topics like politics, gender, race, and religion. Now, speaking on his clothing choices, Prince said that he simply dressed how he wanted, that his personality was made up of his clothing choices and his music, and he didn't dress for anyone other than himself. He actually said that if he wore flashy clothes for other people and monetary gain, then that would make him a prostitute. Looking at you, Elton John. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a valid point. His, I no, I, I do think his... He was part of his personality. Yeah. It I mean, it's be. kind of a reach worked, to say that if you dress a certain way for money, then you're a prostitute. But I mean, I understand the sentiment. Yeah. If you're not being your true authentic self, though, you are kind of a sellout. Sure. Prince spoke on this to Melody Maker in 1981, saying it was a revelation recording this last album. Speaking about 1980s Uptown, he said, I realized that I could write just what was on my mind and things I'd encountered, and I didn't have to hide anything. He went on to say that the lyrics on Uptown were honest and from the heart, where his previous writings were more basic, formulaic, and described dreams and fantasies. In 1982, Prince released 1999. Oh, oh my God. It was and a future a, album. <laughs> yes. It was a double album that had multiple hits and made him one of the first black artists to receive heavy airplay on MTV. In the early days of the TV channel, MTV was infamous for not playing black artists or black music, though they claimed... It wasn't because they were racist. MTV released statements saying that many black artists' music just didn't fit in with their rock format. So mm -hmm. I th I think we can agree MTV is obviously not what it used to be. Yeah. Now it's a lot of reality TV shows. I don't think I've ever seen a music video on there past like 2008. MTV 2, I think. But who even watches cable anymore? I so. don't have cable. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. matter. We all know they're different. Um, there might be some young ones listening. If you don't know what MTV is, they debuted slightly after midnight on August 1st, 1981, with a broadcast of video killed the radio star by the Buggles. Yes. The channel followed top 40 radio format. Video disc jockeys known as VJs introduced said videos and talked about music news in between the clips of the videos. That being said, the format was top 40, right. not rock. Now, an interview with MTV's former director of music programming named Buzz Brindle, mm. he said MTV was originally designated to be or designed to be a rock music channel, and it was difficult to find African-American artists whose music fit the channel's format that leaned toward rock at the outset. Okay. Now, in that same interview, the co-founder of MTV, Les Garland, mentioned they had nothing to pick from and that 50% of his time spent in the early days of MTV was convincing artists to make videos mm -hmm. and convincing record labels to put up the money for them to make those videos. So it kind of sounded like an all-around struggle, like there was not enough. Yeah. Like... <sighs> For they the didn't have enough general. content. Right. Because they're pretty much the reason why people even started making videos. And it now there be, was a place to put them. Yeah, and music videos can be expensive yeah. if you don't have 
all of that stuff yourself. Now, according to journalist Nadra Kareem Little in an article discussing the lack of inclusion on MTV for black artists, she mentions that MTV struggled to play videos of African-American musicians so much so that other artists like Rick James and David Bowie actually publicly took it as a task for themselves to get black artists on air. Yeah, there was an article that I read um, where David Bowie in the thick of this, not like 20 years after the fact, but uh-huh. right when it was happening, called them out and was like talking shit on them for being blatantly racist. Wow. So mm-hmm. in 1982, the music video for 1999 was played on MTV, but only in light rotation and non-peak times. So that would be like overnight or, or middays, maybe because nobody's, yeah. you know, got to watch the soaps. He yeah. played the uh, like the New Year's party, right? Like the, the ball dropping in New York City that year. That was like the big that was the song of the year in 1999. Yeah. Yeah. We're still in 1982, though. <laughs> so oh. he was really smart with this song because he came out with it in 1982 and then it became big again in 1989. So he found a way for himself to be relevant nearly 20 years later by having a song. Foreshadowing. (laughs) Yeah. Nice job. So the the video was played, but only in light rotation and non-peak times. When Michael Jackson released Billie Jean, that music video came out in 1983, and it hit the top of the Billboard Hot 100 for seven straight weeks, and MTV still refused to play it. Top 40? Like, what the... Come on. Right. So it was... Yeah, they refused to play it. That was until Walter Yetnikoff threatened to pull all of his CBS videos from MTV. So fine, we'll just take all of our shit off. So MTV claimed that they independently decided to play the video as soon as they saw it, which I don't think was the case. After that, Prince's video for (laughs) Little Red Corvette was added in heavy rotation. Prince's former keyboardist, Monty Moyer commented that MTV began to shift becoming about 60-40 white to black artists. 1999 was re-released a year later in 1983 (laughs) and given the heavy rotation airplay that it demanded and deserved. Now, 1984 was a huge year for Prince. He began referring to his band as The Revolution, and he released the album and movie Purple Rain. Yes. Uh, Purple Rain is a 1984 American rock musical drama film directed by Albert Magnoli, written by Bagnoli and William Blinn, and produced by Robert Cavallo, Joseph Ruffalo, and Stephen Farnoli. Now, the film stars Prince in his acting debut playing The Kid, a character based in part on Prince himself. Thanks, Wikipedia. Now, the film was a box office... Uh, Do you know how when you forget to talk? Okay. (laughs) So the film was a box office success, grossing 68 million. Mm Mm-hmm. $392,977 in the United States. States. You can't name very many people that became a super successful movie star and rock star at the same time. I don't think Labyrinth grossed that much, but no. No. um, I mean, but Bowie was already big. So was Prince. Well, well, this is way before his not peak. Yet. Like, True. His that, peak hasn't even... This is like the beginning of his peak. He just started on TV and now he's like a movie star also. It's yeah, kind of cool. It's nuts. His his trajectory once he became like famous. So Prince had previously required his management to secure him a movie contract, <laughs> even though it didn't necessarily make sense at the time. The resulting film was semi-autobiographical. It was wildly successful. It won him an Academy Award for Best Original Song Score. And at one point, Prince had secured the number one song album and film in america he had hits with purple rain when doves cry let's go crazy and he won two grammys from that album alone crazy you know that he he wanted stevie nicks to write the lyrics to purple rain i did not know that he reached out to stevie nicks and was like yo you're like the greatest lyricist i know will you write this the lyrics to the song for me and she's like he told her about it and she's like oh my god i I can't do that Hmm. So he's like, all right, fine. And did it. And obviously it crushed. Weird. And she denied it. Well, don't get too excited about Purple Rain. Tipper Gore heard her daughter listening to the song Darling Nikki, which had references to masturbation and some super sexual lyrics. So this was the nail in the coffin for Tipper creating Parents Music Resource Center and parental advisory labels on albums (laughs) to come. Now, we discussed this briefly uh, in an episode from season one, I'm pretty sure that it was the Dimebag Daryl yeah. episode. Because it was the, we were talking about the album covers in general. Yes, yeah. yes. So mm-hmm. he was the reason why all of this happened. We're not, right. not mad. 
not mad because it's pretty much the mark of a cool album if it's got the parental advisory sticker but sure. it does make it harder to get when you're a kid yeah I, if you're nine it sucks <laughs> i went to yeah i went to best buy one time to buy a daddy yankee cd <laughs> because it was great <laughs> and i loved it and the guy my dad was there with me and the guy was like i can't sell this to you it's got a parental advisory and i was like my dad's right there and then he like yeah, looked at my dad. dad and my dad is like, she doesn't know what the fuck they're saying. Cause it's all in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> the only way I yeah. could get parental advisory CDs or movies was if my dad was there. Oh, Clint. My mom was like, parental advisory? Nuh-uh. <laughs> but my dad would be like, well, what's on it? And then I would read like part of the label. I'd be like, adult themes. And he was <laughs> like, um... I guess it's fine. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that sticker somehow translated into every mom saying no. Right. Yeah. When I was reading through this and we were doing our research, I was like, why does Tipper Gore sound familiar? I was like, surely she can't be related in some way to Al Gore. And sure enough, <laughs> me, the non-political person. Non-give-a-fucker. Uh, so I called Alex to tell her my stupidity, but I also did a little bit of research so that you would also not feel as dumb as I did. So Mary Elizabeth Tipper Gore is an American social issue, issues, <laughs> issues activist. <laughs> advocate she's a social issues advocate who was the second lady of the united states from 1993 to 2001 because she was married to al gore who was the vice president Mm. which i did not know i just knew him (laughs) as a senator and then alex was like i didn't even know him as a senator i was like why did i call you you don't remember him running for president we were literally Uh, children so when he was actually a vice president he was the 45th vice president yeah Electing the year I was born. He ran against Bush, which I was I was very well aware. I've watched that election on TV. Ah. So I was like, he didn't win. He couldn't have been vice president. And then Daniel tried to tell me he was vice president to Bush. And I was like, no, why do I ask anybody anything? That makes even less sense. It was so silly. We had this whole discussion on the phone. She called and was like, Well, I figured it out. But (laughs) it was like, yes, he was vice president, but I think it was for Clinton, and I think it was like when we were um four years old. So I so that's why we didn't care remember but like don't actually remember so this group that mary ended up putting together wanted guidelines for regulating music deemed sexual violent or all-around uncouth direct quote i don't say the word uncouth um they also wanted warning labels on all everything that fit that just vague ass description so lame yeah nerds in 1985 prince said that he planned to stop performing live and creating music videos after his next album came out that was not true (laughs) yeah far from the truth he did get some awards for worst director worst actor and worst original song for his work on a film called under the cherry moon though the album parade that went with the film actually did pretty well they have worst awards that's what i'm saying it was not for it was not for like the grammys or the academy it it was was one of those rolling stones it was one of those like dumb things uh gotcha yeah 1985 is also when Paisley Park Records debuted with Prince's seventh album release. He's already at seven at this point. Insane. Man was crazy. He so, wrote his first song when he was seven. So, Well, we can't all be Prince. Now, this album was called Around the World in a Day. The new label was a joint venture with Warner Brothers. And during this merge, they basically demanded eight more Prince albums. So they already got seven. They're adding eight more onto it. The upside, Prince could now pre-approve acts that would work with this label. He started working with Sheila E., Tevin Campbell, Mavis Staples, George Clinton actually recorded Mm. with him. And in 1933, Carmen Electra did too. Yes, girl. (laughs) We'll get to that. Oh, yeah. I went went into it. Yeah. I went into it. And I went into what you said. So we'll get there. Fascinating. So right now in (laughs) 1986, Prince went back to touring. Despite his previous announcement that he would quit, instead he just fired his whole band. Mm. Um, Before disbanding the revolution, Prince was working on an album with them and another solo album called Camille. This is where the androgyny was really driven in. Alas, when the revolution broke up, he took all that material they were working on and he combined it with his androgynous Camille solo work. And then he added some more songs to the mix for a double LP release called Sign of the Times. Then came the Black Album and Love Sexy. The Love Sexy World Tour drew huge crowds, but Prince, his expensive tastes and extravagant stage setups got the best of him, and his Love Sexy Tour failed to net a profit in the end because of it. Yeah, the Love Sexy Tour was so costly, it didn't even break even until it reached the final leg of the tour in Japan, which was in 
early 1989. Yeah. Prince was draining. It's it's he wasn't losing money because he wasn't selling tickets. He was selling tickets. He was right. just also spending a shitload of money. He was draining <laughs> through it at a record speed. He also was insistent that his shows weren't that much money. The ticket price? Yeah. Like oh, he, I was would... like, what's not that much money? Yeah. <laughs> because they were expensive. Production level. Okay. Production yeah. heavy. Yeah, but... Maybe the tickets. Well, I'm sure the tickets weren't really that much. The rest of the 80s went kind of like this. Touring, writing, filming, touring, writing, touring, collaborating, touring. And now it's the 90s. Jeez. Prince put together a new backing band. It was called the New Power Generation. We'll refer to it probably as NPG from here on out. Yeah. The mission was to make Prince commercially marketable again. They were adding hip hop to the style with a rapper, Tony Mosley, and a DJ, Kirky J for an album mm. titled Diamonds and Pearls. And this was an instance when Prince followed a trend rather than set it. On the tour, Carmen Electra was his lady interest and resident rapper slash go-go dancer. Um, and side note, holy shit, I had to see it. She had a song called Go-Go Dancer and I had no idea that Carmen Electra began as like a musician. No. Wait. I encourage you to watch the music video. What? I couldn't even tell you what she did other than act. Yeah, I saw her in the like scary movie. Yeah. The third one? <laughs> when they stabbed her in the tit and they ripped her implant That's out. the third one. <laughs> yeah, or the fourth one. That was the best one. <laughs> I think it was Scary Movie 3. Yeah, the third one's the best one. I mean, it was hilarious. Yeah. But she does this music video and the choreography is incredible and athletic. And the celebration of stripping and sex work culture is like 30 years ahead of its time. It was crazy. So, so watch it. I recommend watching the video, but with the sound off because the song does not matter whatsoever. It's like a opening sped up kind of. She's like almost doing spoken word. She's rapping. It's not rapping until you get to the chorus and then it's bad rapping. Pass Carmen Electro. Watch that video. It's It's crazy. (laughs) Trouble was brewing between Prince and Warner Brothers. He needed money to continue recording, so he signed a six-album deal with Warner Brothers that let them take control, some control, over his freedom in music, but it also gave him a seat on their board. If you remember from the beginning, Prince had a contract where he was granted complete artistic freedom. This new contract stripped him of a portion of that control. So in 1987, Paisley Park Studio Complex opened. It's located in Minnesota, a $10 million estate with 6,500 square feet. Thousand. Whoa! 65,000 square feet. Uh, The outside photos actually look like this place is some type of architectural museum, but now it is a museum, which is kind of cool. Now, the building has two live music venues that served as rehearsal space, and Prince made that his main location for pretty much everything when he wasn't actually touring. Records, music videos, rehearsing for tour. The building was also used like crazy for one-off performances in the late 90s, and up until 1996, you could actually rent out the facilities for your own personal use. So let's look at the rundown. Prince needed $2 million a year, at least, to run the 24-hour upkeep of his studio, Paisley Park, so that he could just stop in whenever the fuck he wanted. And if Prince's albums shipped at least 5 million units, he'd get a $10 million advance on the next album. So the previous one had to do really, really well. He also earned a royalty fee of 20%, which is pretty normal. It's usually between 15 and 25%. And this all sounds fucking awesome to me, but it was not awesome for Prince. Yeah, in June 1989, Warner Brothers releases Prince's 11th album at this point, It was the Batman film soundtrack. You know the one. Jack (laughs) Nicholson, Michael Keaton. Yep. So (laughs) the album itself took only six weeks to record. And the irony of this is that Prince had most of the creative control still at this point. But it was obviously a marketing ploy by the record label to get him to do the album in the first place. The album became Prince's number one album. Like the first one since the release of Around the World in a Day. And in order to use the songs for the film, Prince had to sign the rights away to the label. And uh, so then they had all, all the lights. So he had the creative it. control, but they had the songs that he couldn't so have ownership So then they did a over. movie soundtrack record and probably made all the money on yes. it. Mm. It was a good movie. It's arguably one of my favorite Batman. <laughs> have you guys Fair. seen it? I know it's, it's pretty old. Um, is it the one where he's a kid and he sees his parents getting shot in the alley? Well, that's every Batman. That's how Batman happens. But, but the, the movie 
Do they all start out the same way? Uh, no, I like Danny the DeVito as does, the penguin. You know, like, this is, uh, no, the one with Jack- Michael Keaton, I thought, is the one that starts off. That's how it yes, starts. It does start like that. The yes. movie starts like that. I know how the story, but the movie starts like yeah, that. Yeah, but the iconic Jack Nicholson mm. Joker, obviously, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's iconic. It's just going to get back to what I know, which is Prince. All right, now it's the beginning of the end for him, in my opinion, Diamonds and Pearls, that album failed to ship 5 million units, which was oh. part of the whole deal of him getting the advance. It only hit 2 million units. So the record label was expecting him to surpass his peak fame of the 80s, but the musical landscape was starting to change, and he had already been in it for 10 years, so he did not make his $10 million advance. And I failed to mention this sooner, but Warner Brothers also acquired the rights to Prince's back catalog, going all the way back to his recordings from 1978, which... How did that happen? Prince was livid with the unfair terms of his contract, and he was determined to gain back control of the catalog. He wanted to work even harder. He wanted to produce more music and release two albums a year. That's nuts. Warner (laughs) Brothers encouraged him not to. They figured that his albums would begin to compete with each other, and they wanted him to release less. The power struggle resulted in a huge public blowout. He released an album with his new band that had an unpronounceable symbol as the title. People began calling it Love Symbol. It was a combination Mm. of the symbols for male and female, and Warner Brothers was not happy about it. Prince declared that he would retire from recording, though he had only released the first of the six albums that he promised in his contract. He declared his former self dead and began to go by the love symbol in protest. The press began calling him the artist formerly known as Prince. And here comes the public protest. This guy's such a badass. He decided to release his albums as quickly as possible just to get it, just to break that contract (laughs) out of the way. So he performed with the word slave written on his face. He refused to give interviews. The media just didn't know what to do. They started losing interest in him. And they were wondering how someone who signed a contract for $100 million could feel like a slave. Uh, I don't know the stipulations behind the contract. (laughs) (laughs) Prince started his own record label called NPG Records, New Power Generation Records, but he didn't uh, want to write any new music because it would be owed to Warner Brothers Mm. for their six album contract. He gave them tons of old unreleased material and he wrote a song called The Most Beautiful Girl in the World that was later deemed in court to be plagiarized and subsequently removed from future pressings. So that one is not on the playlist for this week. No, he, yeah. He definitely was a creative songwriter, obviously, but mm-hmm. even more creative at fucking the man because that's like a crazy <laughs> amount of good, like awesome steps yeah, I to mean, get your way. Like, oh, I'm changing my name. Well, my just, name is just a symbol. You can't even fucking copyright yeah. that. All he was of so things, smart. I don't... And yeah. he was the first one to do it all, too. I mean, is, I've never seen anyone do it since. The way that this guy gave double middle finger double middle fingles. fingers to the man was crazy i mean he did everything that he could to say fuck you that was kind of a part guys. a really important part of his personality is how resilient he was his entire life because he was short he was like really loved sports his basketball coach would always bench him and like mm-hmm. he was always so resilient in like having to play and anytime you told him no you can't have your way like he just his mind he made sure he could have his way. He wanted with, to prove you wrong. Yeah, every way that you could possibly get your way, he he, he managed it. So yeah, props. I mean, he always had everything stacked against him, and still came out on top every single time. Yeah. Now the 1994 hit was reported to be plagiarized by two Italian songwriters, Bruno Bergonzi and Michael or Mich- Michelle Vicino. 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 <laughs> Who wrote the song back in 1983. The songwriters took Prince to court in 1995. And apparently Italian courts have this weird process of going back and forth between mm-hmm. vor- verdicts and cases. It took like three rounds of verdicts and cases. And like it was pretty confusing. There was some legal jargon thrown in. I am not a lawyer. So I will what? say the, the case dragged out over 20 years. But in May 2015, the court finally decided that it was plagiarized. Oh, my God. Okay. Which is crazy. Wow. But why would Prince use some random Italian dude's song? I mean, like, there were just, only so many notes. 
Warner Brothers felt <laughs> as if their star musician was spiraling, while Prince felt as though he could do better without Warner Brothers holding him back. Sure. They were uncertain about advancing Prince any money because at this point they weren't sure if he would ever be able to make it back for them. They closed his 24-hour Paisley Park Studios in 1984, and in retaliation, Prince released some of his new music, and that's in quotes, with NPG records. <laughs> He, um, there was an album that was left unfinished since Paisley Park closed, and he brought that over to MPG, and he called it 1-800-NEW-FUNK. In October that same year, Prince's publicist issued a statement, talking crap for like Warner Brothers. They're, they didn't release the gold experience, which would have been Prince's 17th studio oh, album. We were only, what, 10 years from Earth? Like, it's crazy. There's so many albums. So the publicist says Prince now feels that his much publicized $100 million deal may have been a way to lock him into, into institutionalized slavery with Warner Brothers. So I guess because he was trying to give the albums to Warner to put out toward his, like, owed debt mm-hmm. of albums, uh, they just wouldn't take it. So he ended up releasing it himself. He did everything music production all of it um and released that with npg in 1995 he ended up winning a brit award in february 1996 for best international male okay (laughs) (laughs) so he shows up he's got slave written on his cheek again and in his acceptance speech he goes on to tell the crowd that he's going to release the gold experience in concert on record for free the people that worked with him were like well we don't work for free how are you going to pay us so Prince then released another new album uh, called Exodus under NPG in 1995. And that one was with material that was not new. It was old that the new power generation had come up with years prior. Prince had he had to use a new name on the album because he was at risk of being sued by Warner Brothers if he wrote as either Prince or the symbol. So while he's trying to keep music away from Warner Brothers from releasing it, he has to use a new name. So he went by Tora Tora, or literally it means tiger in Japanese, but it was the code word that the Japanese used to mean attack during Pearl Harbor. So when he was promoting Exodus, Prince also had to make any public appearances with his face covered because his image and his likeness and whatever was owned by Warner Brothers. That's crazy. So he did all of this shit, like, just to say, fuck you. You don't own me. He covered his face, and everybody knew, like, that's Prince. But the, right. it's, it's not like Dead Mouse. He's like, I'm not breaking the law. <laughs> I'm not violating the contract. It's bucket head. <laughs> so finally, with the release of Chaos and Disorder in 1996, an album with biting songs directed at Warner Brothers, like, Dig You Better Dead and Right the Wrong, Prince was finally released from his contractual obligations. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I didn't like that. Oh, yeah. They, he shit all up and down on them on that album. Prince was finally released from the contract. It was one of his worst performing albums yet, but that's kind of obvious. I mean, he just wrote it to get the fuck out of there. And sure. Warner Brothers, they, he was talking about them on the album. So they were like, you know what? We're not going to promote it. Like, whatever. Goodbye. <laughs> so <laughs> they hardly promoted it at all. In 1996, Prince also got married to a dancer that he had first met in 1990 outside of his bus. Her name was Meta Garcia. He pointed her out as his future wife. And she was, you know, they were married in 1996. <laughs> he was 37. She was 22. They had a child named Amir together. But their their baby tragically died a week after being born. It had a condition. He had a condition called Pfeiffer syndrome, which is where your cranial bones fuse too early. And it can cause the forehead to grow abnormally large and the eyes to bulge. Mm. So that loss paired with another miscarriage later on understandably put a huge strain on his relationship with Meta. Unfortunately, releasing albums on MPG was only reaching Prince's core fan base, so he needed the support of a major label if he wanted to get back out there. So he partnered with EMI for his first triple album called Emancipation. Yeah, the release was also credited to NPG2, not just solely through EMI. And it was actually this release that marked a starting period where Prince hopped between labels. He went from Columbia to Universal Music Group back to Columbia. We'll talk about it. He did jump around and it was to avoid having any like 
major contracts with people. He would do like one-off album deals. And I think I mentioned that later. I don't remember. Many of the songs on Emancipation were ones that he recorded, but he kept secret from Warner Brothers. He saved the best for a new label. And guess what? It was successful. Prince's relationship with EMI was pretty much the opposite of what it was with Warner Brothers. And his album charted at number 11, and it became the fourth best-selling triple album of all time in the United States. In 1997, Prince started to capitalize on the internet for music sales revolutionary he really had a hand in developing a direct way for artists to make more money and eliminate the middleman of the record label he introduced his website 1-800-newfunk.com which was the first (laughs) attempt of a major artist to sell merchandise directly to consumers prince was able to push out his npg records on the site he also began to crack down on his copyright of the love symbol and this, like when Metallica sued their fans with Napster, created animosity amongst his fan base. He sued nine different fan websites over their use of his symbol and for selling bootleg merchandise. <laughs> Eventually, he did end up dropping the cases, but the damage was already done. I mean, he's not wrong for doing this, so artists N- should be credited yeah, for that work. Yeah, so fuck. But I mean, fuck those guys. They're stealing your shit and they're trying to make money off yeah, of it. And they you- didn't do any of the work. Right. As an outsider... The Metallica Napster thing was that them just downloading their music for free. People were downloading, so everyone was downloading music on Napster from all kinds of artists, but Metallica were the ones who came out and said, no, fuck you, and they sued their fans. And then their fans were like, that's not fair because the way that you guys used to do this was they would trade tapes. You know, in in like the 80s, they would trade tapes. And they said, we're basically just trading tapes. You didn't make money off of that. And they were like, yeah, but... No, like, no, yeah, that's, this is different. The, doing, like, the scope of sure. music that's being stolen because of the internet is different. Yeah. I will not. I mean, did I use LimeWire? Yeah. Should did I have been investigated by the FBI? Like, Maybe. Daniel got a cease and desist one time for downloading Monsters University. <laughs> I mean, Damn. look. But Disney, we, were, though, we like, were wrong. I do believe that we were wrong. If you want to steal music, just burn a CD. Shit. I mean, you, you just have to. I don't know. I music don't think that is... they're wrong for suing people for stealing their music. I'd be fucking pissed if somebody stole our shit and reproduced it and made or made money off of stuff yeah. that we did. I would be pissed. Well, that's just the thing is that people, for some reason, feel like they have this ownership over music. And music is the only industry in the arts like that. You can't steal a picture. You wouldn't steal a DVD. You can't, like, you books steal a car. You write you a book. Steal- <laughs> and they're fucking, fr- you know, books aren't free if you want to listen to it. Yeah, they are when they're in public domain. Oh, my God. Yeah, but like. It's not, though. None of it but is free. It also has to have Why? been published for like 200 years. Yeah. So same with like the Library of Congress sure. has music things like that are accessible that you can listen to for free. But it's not like if all your relatives them, die right? and there's no one to give royalties to. Sure. Whatever. Maybe make it free. But to create <laughs> stuff. Sure. And like not get anything for it. Music, it's the only industry like this where like people just expect you to spend all this time and energy putting all of you into this thing. And for free. They just wanted to go stream it for free. Yeah. Or, you you know, Spotify or you get point zero four cents per listen. Or stream, you know. Yeah. It's, it's highway robbery. Now, essentially divorced from the music industry, Prince began to focus on being less flashy and extravagant, and he was approaching his music from a more thoughtful and artistic perspective. His web direct method of distributing music won him several awards for best internet single. This is like brand wow. new at the time. World Wide Web. Like, <laughs> streaming was not a thing. Best internet single, he was encouraged, he encouraged other artists to stick it to the man and sell their music directly. But Prince knew that major labels were still necessary for distribution. So in the following years, he signed one-off deals with majors to get his music more exposure. At the same time that Prince was divorcing from the industry, he publicly announced a divorce from his wife, Meta, the one that their baby passed away so he decided that he didn't need a piece of paper to keep them together he despised all contracts with capital con Uh, (laughs) so their marriage was annulled and he ended up leaving her for another woman anyways manuela testolini during the late 90s prince also grew closer to his bassist larry graham who became sort of a spiritual advisor for him and prince converted to jehovah's witness in 2001 he regained a relationship with his father 
Remember, the, he kicked him out when he was just a kid, and he hadn't had a relationship with him since his childhood, but his father passed away shortly afterwards. Oh. Yeah. So then in the winter of 2001, Prince secretly married Manuela, and they were so good at keeping it a secret, nobody could even confirm that they were married until they got divorced in 2006. What the heck? In February 2001, Prince uses those business smarts yet again and embraces the internet even more. He opened NPG Music Club, which was an online subscription service that offered exclusive content. He was ahead of his time, paving the way for future artists and companies to do the same. His service only lasted until 2006, but without Prince, you wouldn't have things like Apple or Spotify, and you couldn't listen to us or hear this podcast. Probably. Yeah. So at the same time, Prince sort of recentered himself. He was focusing on jazz fusion music, and he dropped a lot of his hatred for the industry. Prince began to play at mostly theaters and small venues on the One Night Only tour in 2002. He brought his fan club members to every soundtrack and stripped back on the production level of his shows. He was finally able to make some money on a tour, as oh. opposed to the Love Sexy tour. Oh. In the 2000s, after being freed from Warner Brothers officially, Prince announced at a press conference that he finally felt comfortable going by his own name again. He continued to release music and perform, being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004 by Beyonce and members of Outkast. And that year, he was also named the highest earning musician in the world at $56.5 million. I looked, I looked up who it was currently. Oh. Or for not uh, so it was highest mus- earning musician in the world mm-hmm. for 2020. Drake. Who do you think it is? Ed Sheeran. You said Drake. Yeah. Kanye West. Kanye. Really? I thought Taylor Swift. He had a new album in 2019, and he has another one coming out this year. So he didn't even put out an album in 2020, but he was the highest paid. What the? F- that is wild. But that would be annoying if, like, musician wise, it would still count your gross income from like your fashion side too. I feel like there's some bullshit going on there because he was like about to go bankrupt in like ni- 2019. I bet he's pulling mm. some weird shit. Did he just shit. do a Michael Scott where he was just trying to declare it? Yeah, or he <laughs> might have pulled like the, the abusive capitalism thing and been like, oh, I made all this money. Now I don't have any money and just lie about it. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know him. <laughs> um, with the release of two, or his 2004 Musicology, Prince distributed concert tickets of his current tour with the album. Wow, that's cool shit. Yeah, so the uh, the method helped the album become Prince's biggest seller since 1991, and it ultimately changed how Billboard and SoundScan counted album sales included with concert tickets. So I'm assuming they would not count those because it was like a... Were, which one were you paying for? Right. Wow. But would you have to, cool. would that drive up the, like the overall price of the album? I would assume... Like where is it could it be C? one of those things where you're buying a concert ticket, but you get the album for free or you're buying right it's like a, a very expensive album and you get a ticket for free. Right. But where does the <laughs> ticket go to? What? What location? So the person which concert? Paying? I guess it was just like an admit. It was a it was a golden ticket. An right. admit you, one. You could, yeah, go, to, you could he, go to any concert. That, from... But seats. I mean, how do seats work? I mean, how I don't does know. Maybe even... it was like a voucher, and you went on it, uh, your website or something. And it was did a Willy use, Wonka he thing. Did he use did internet. use the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so the two thousands brought on many memorable performances and accolades for Prince. He performed at the Super Bowl halftime show in two thousand seven. He headlined Coachella in two thousand eight, and was named one of Times one hundred most influential people in the world in 2010 and this is like way past his prime right prince laid low on releasing music for four years then he finally began a group called third eye girl with three female backup musicians he made an account on twitter to sneakily market the band like nobody really (laughs) knew that it was his thing and then they played like guerrilla shows across london so they would just pop up and and play a show he released an album with this group and then a solo album under none other then Warner Brothers. There it is. Call it an olive branch. In 2016, Prince set out on his last tour, which was a low-key, reflective string of shows across Europe and the United States. He received a deal to write a memoir, but that never happened. Not while he was alive, at least. Like I said, uh, at the beginning of this, it came out after he died. Prince's final show was in Atlanta on April 14th of 2016. The previous week, Prince had canceled two shows. He said he had the flu. He apologized at the April 14th show in Atlanta, but fans suspected that there was probably some underlying health issue going on it wasn't 
just the flu. Sure enough, on his flight home to Minneapolis on April 15th, he suffered a seizure and he lost consciousness. They had to make an emergency landing in Illinois. Paramedics didn't even wait. Like, they just got straight on the plane while he was, while it was still on the runway, and they administered Narcan, which, as we know, is used in overdoses. Prince was transported to a nearby hospital where he recovered within hours and resumed his flight home. He kept up with the flu story, though. He told fans that he just had to stop to receive emergency fluids because of his persistent flu. Once he arrived home, he was spotted several times in public. He was riding his bike. He stopped into a record store for record store day and was telling fans that he felt just fine. In the following days, Prince had multiple trips to a local Walgreens filling prescriptions for painkillers. He had relapsed, but quickly on April 20th, it appears that Prince was finally willing to accept help. His representatives contacted a specialist, Howard Cornfield, in addiction medicine and pain management. Prince was supposed to receive a physical exam the very next day, and he was going to meet with the specialist, Howard, on April 22nd. But that never got to happen. The very next day, April 21st at 9.43 a.m., an ambulance was dispatched to Prince's residence to respond to an unidentified unconscious person. It was the specialist Howard Cornfield's son that found Prince. His son had flown in to come help with a treatment plan for opioid addiction. Paramedics entered the residence uh, where Prince was located in an elevator, dead. They made attempts to revive him, but were unsuccessful, and they determined that he'd been dead laying there for at least six hours. It was determined that it wasn't a murder, nor was it a suicide. It was an accidental overdose of fentanyl. Prince was only 57 years old. So where the hell did this addiction even come from? That's It seems totally out of left field. That's what I'm saying. I mean... Other situations with celebrities, you can see the signs, you know, like red flags here and there. Mm -hmm. They're erratic. Their behavior's off. But this was like, he just seems so normal. Yeah. I mean, Prince was always known as being super active. Like we, you mentioned before, Drew, he played basketball all the time. He was healthy. He was a vegan. He was a non-smoker. He was a pretty straight shooter. But he'd been suffering from hip pain for years and this is likely the result of his stage antics he would jump off of risers he was wearing heels on stage Mm -hmm. and he would drop into the splits you know he was just doing this year after year after year total showman he was awesome so he had been suffering from excruciating hip pain um and he was due to undergo a double hip replacement surgery Here's where some shit comes up. Jehovah's Mm. Witnesses don't believe in blood transfusions, so it's reported that Prince opted out of the surgery, instead taking painkillers and walking with a cane. Now, the cane didn't really turn too many heads. Many people believed it was just a fashion accessory and that, you know, he'd been appearing with one since the early 90s. I had no idea. I really, like you said, it seemed like it was fashion related. Yeah, well, it seems like later on it might have been practical as well of course it was a stylish cane of course yeah (laughs) so here's a disclaimer as um as far as the jehovah's witness stuff goes because there are different sides of the story here now according to the funk soldiers on tumblr jehovah's witnesses do not outright deny medical treatment uh they believe that it is up to the individual to decide what is best yada yada they're not taking responsibility for his decision to not go with the double hip replacement Uh, Witnesses are not permitted to take blood for the purpose of sustaining the body. I'm going to cut you off here and say that it makes me laugh that you use Tumblr as a source. They're not going to take blood transfusions, but they're going to use Tumblr. Well, they explained. (laughs) I don't know if these people were Jehovah's Witnesses or not, but they explained the perspective. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. Which was helpful because I don't know what they believe. What if you like all of your body, all of your blood had cancer cells in it? Well, so here's the thing. This is what I was trying to say is that they technically don't believe in receiving whole blood okay half blood half Prince. Blo- no so like <laughs> if, if you have blood that has been lost during a procedure you can retake that blood uh they'll also take parts of blood like red cells white cells platelets or plasma but not whole blood and this is based in scripture i mean whatever this is what they believe and he could have said yes i will do it so anyways this is the perspective according to people who claim to know what the fuck jehovah's witnesses think (laughs) he could have done there were other options 
regardless, he didn't have double hip replacement, but he did have hip surgery at some point. There was a scar on his left hip. Um, but that could have been before he converted. Who knows? I don't, secretive. I don't know. So he had been experiencing hip pain for more than a decade and had a prescription for Percocet. Mm. Now, fentanyl, speaking about this in particular, can be around 50 times more deadly than heroin. Uh, it was determined that Prince had gotten his hands on a counterfeit medication. He likely believed that he was taking Vicodin, but instead he got a lethal dose of fentanyl. Death occurs between 3 and 50 micrograms of fentanyl per liter of blood, and Prince's level post-mortem was 67.8, so it was over 17 micrograms per liter above what would kill a normal person. An investigation was opened to determine the source of the medications. Where the fuck did he get them? It was unlikely that they were prescribed. If if someone dies in a case like this, their dealer faces a mandatory minimum sentence of 20 years in prison. And that's a federal. Now. That's a federal rule. Well, this was in 2016. Okay. Um, so the investigation turned up the name of Prince's doctor, Dr. Michael Todd Schulenberg, who in fact had prescribed him some pain medication in the past, but after a bunch of investigating, there was no evidence to support that the pills came from a doctor. There was no evidence to support any sort of conspiracy to kill Prince either. They couldn't find any traces of where the counterfeit pills came from. I mean, it's crazy because he was famous. You know, he could have had any celebrity connections that he wanted. But I feel like that's not a celebrity type thing to do. A connection would be somebody that you trust. That's oh, not going to fuck you over. Yeah. But this seems like some kind well, of, I mean, people die from fentanyl overdoses because they're getting fucked over by like street dealers. So who right. knows where he got these from? So according to an article from the Associated Press and News, um, they listed Prince's longtime friend, bodyguard, and sometimes drummer Kirk Johnson as a potential suspect in where the pills might have come from. Kirk also helped manage the Paisley Park estate and was one of the three people to find Prince dead. And document support search warrants stated Johnson contacted Prince's doctor to help him with the hip pain. And Johnson was also on the airplane that made the emergency stop in Illinois when Prince had overdosed. Johnson also told hospital staff that Prince might have taken Percocet. Mm-hmm. He is also silent when it comes to talking about Prince's last days, which is understandable. I mean, they were friends, so it's going to be hard to talk about. But also police found prescription bottles in Johnson's name in Paisley Park after Prince had died. Mm. So you know who it really was, just like the Elvis episode was rock doctor i think somebody got it i don't think it was a prescription i don't think it Mm -mm. came from a pharmacy i think that somebody potentially maybe this guy was like hey you're having some issues because he'd been to the walgreens trying to get this stuff and if it wasn't working if it if he was still in pain they were probably like no look i know a guy and he took it because he trusted whoever gave it to him and then after he was after he died the that person wasn't going to speak it's up a i mean why would you speak up you wouldn't say yeah. i gave him this illegal shit at least elvis's sh- stuff was prescribed and it came from a pharmacy it wasn't a, le- a lethal dose of fentanyl i just think when you're that at that level of rock star there's better connections than you know going to a guy on the sidewalk the practitioner guy hadn't prescribed him anything for at least 2 weeks before and he didn't prescribe him that yeah. So he wouldn't have gone to Walgreens and picked up a lethal dose of fentanyl. It had to come from an outside source. It had to. Sure. So ultimately, no charges were filed in Prince's death. Carver County attorney Mark Metz said the evidence suggests that Prince had long suffered significant pain, became addicted to pain medications, but took efforts to protect his privacy. According to an NBC News article by Daniela Silva, while no charges were filed against Dr. Schulenberg on a federal level, he did settle a civil case out of court for $30,000. He claimed no responsibility, though he had prescribed Prince opioids uh, about a week before his death. He said he was just paying to avoid the litigation because court cases take forever. Much like the rest of the world, Prince's family was unhappy with the decision not to press charges. They, like everybody else, had no idea that Prince was even suffering like that. Yeah, when the news of his death hit, the internet went hysterical. Twitter was trending with hashtag RIP Prince almost instantly. So a Barack Obama said, a strong spirit transcends rules. Prince once said, and nobody's spirit was stronger, bolder, or more creative. Paul McCartney said, God bless this creative giant. Thanks, Prince. 
Actor Will Smith actually said in a Facebook post that he was stunned and heartbroken because he had just spoken to Prince the night before Mm -hmm. his death. Um, And he tweeted, Today, Jade and I mourn with all of you the loss of a beautiful poet, a true inspiration, and one of the most magnificent artists to ever grace this earth. He never slowed down. He never stopped. And then all of a sudden, completely unexpectedly, I mean, he was only 57 years old. Nobody saw that coming. I mean, that was just bizarre. And it's terrible that I mean, I don't know what his estate was like. I would assume he had probably had people buzzing around like Elvis did, and nobody found him for six hours. For sure. I mean, you've never seen his house. It looks like a shopping mall. Yeah. To look up his house. Nobody saw weird. him. Like, nobody found him for six hours, and it, it sucks because he was seeking treatment, too. I mean, right. he was supposed to get help the very next day. That guy's son, uh, the specialist's son, flew in to see him and give him an assessment. He came with a sort of... It was some sort of medicine that helps you wean off of opioids. Yeah. And then the very next day he was going to meet with his dad and like figure out a treatment plan. It's always suspicious when someone that high high profile just kind of dies in this way. Yeah. With no real answers, you know, especially someone like him where he, you know, might might have been addicted to Percocets, but like. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a big drug user. He wasn't a drinker. He it's wasn't... not like he wasn't using it to it, like Elvis was using drugs to wake up and go to sleep. Right. Prince was using them as they were intended to be used. And it Just probably built a tolerance, you know, it gets it does get a little bit out of hand because they are addictive drugs. But it's not like he wasn't in, actually in pain. He was. Right. And then you start to develop a dependence on them. You just have to be so fucking careful. Like fentanyl really blew up in the news and how many people were overdosing on fentanyl and like be careful of what kind of stuff you're getting on the street because everything's laced and people aren't checking and you don't know where it's coming from and you know you can it's a weird drug to see like on the street you know like it's just it's it's strange because it is like a pharmaceutical creation when you were at the hospital we talked about your injury in a previous episode drew mm-hmm. was injured they gave him a fentanyl drip so all of the medications that you get at the hospital in a drip they're supposed to cut them empty them down the sink and then throw away the plastic the nurse i'm telling you just threw, threw the, the whole bag in the trash wow whole i mean imagine how much fentanyl was in that thing One and that drip. just went into the trash and now anybody who goes through the hospital dumpsters can pull that out and now they've got a shitload of fentanyl yeah i mean that freaked me out for him to be on a drip especially after hearing stuff like this and i mean all these stories where people accidentally overdose they think they know what they're doing because they think it's something else like obviously if you take one percocet that's not going to kill you yeah you're like I'm managing this pain. I'll be okay. I know what I'm doing. Turns out it is a more than lethal dose of fentanyl. But at 57, the dude by himself wrote more songs than the Beatles or all the Beatles combined. <laughs> yeah, and It's probably. like over 600 songs. And then all the scores and stuff for movies. He did a couple Disney movies towards the end of his life. Yeah, he's like a renaissance man. What yeah. Disney movie did he do? What's the Penguin one? Happy, Happy, Happy Feet? Happy Feet. Was that Disney? Th- no. Or Pixar. Or Pixar I think right? it was Pixar. Looking anyway, it's yeah. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> it's Warner Brothers. <laughs> That's been another Death by Music podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Yeah. Episode one of season two. Uh, we do appreciate you guys so much for listening. And it is very important to us that you share this with people. I mean, I only listen to to podcasts through recommendations i don't think i've ever organically just been like huh oh let me listen to this i go by word of mouth if someone tells me something's good i'll listen to it so if you hear anybody saying oh what podcast are you listening to lately and you throw our name in there that'd be really awesome i know apple podcasts does reviews maybe google podcasts does as well i don't know spotify doesn't but if you are in a position to review please do so uh, recommend us to people that would be awesome and then you know continue listening we find have- us on facebook instagram mm-hmm. twitter yeah we have like nobody on our twitter page right now but i'm still trying to post just in case it reaches one person so follow us 
be that person. Death by Pod team is the Twitter handle. But if you search Death by Podcast team, you'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our email address is deathbypodcastteam at gmail.com. You can send us ideas. <laughs> we are open to them. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Rest in constipated. I have some laxatives. Oh my god, Drew almost fucking dosed me the other day. I was like, where's because I had a migraine and I was like, where's the Advil? He said it's in the bedroom, so I went and he said it was on his nightstand. Fucking it was laxatives. I almost took three laxatives. You would have been you would have been calling a night on that. Uh, I would have shit my brains out. Okay, well since I'm timbers, everyone. Later nerds. Music by Demons, at Demons Band on Instagram. Graphic Arts by Mike Johnson. Writing by Alex Motler and Cassie Gardner. With assistance from Drew Orton.